you know, JFK's speech into one of the greatest speeches ever, Martin Luther King's speeches. Everything is scripted. The best salespeople in the world, they're not flying by the seat of their pants. They are scripted. And scripting your day is as essential as scripting every football play in the Super Bowl. You don't just go and wing it. That's not how a high performer acts. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, there are too many people out there who just want the harvest but don't necessarily want to do the hard work of farming. And I got to admit, sometimes I fall into that category. They just want a seven-figure business or a huge social media following, but they're not willing to put in the work or the effort every single day, day in and day out. The desire for instant gratification becomes pervasive and certainly is pervasive in our culture today, and there's zero substance behind any of it. But today's guest, Craig Ballantyne, provides a remarkable amount of substance, at least for high performers like us who want to take action and are willing and ready to do the work every single day. Even if they struggle, they're still willing to get back up and resume doing the work. Craig Ballantyne is a productivity and success transformation coach, co-owner of EarlyToRise.com, and the author of The Perfect Day Formula, How to Own the Day and Control Your Life, a book that I think goes beyond the morning routine to offer an ideal way for high performers like you and I to stay focused on what we are called to do. But it wasn't always this way for Craig. Craig at one time used to experience crippling anxiety attacks due to what he called the paradox of freedom. He could literally do anything he wanted, even if that was working 12 hours a day and then partying in the city, and all of that stuff caught up with him. But when he began to structure his day, when he began to put boundaries around his work time, and he became way more productive. He was able to get way more done on time and get home to his family and be actually physically, mentally, spiritually present to them and concentrate on what counts. There's a ton of value and gold throughout this episode and the book and the resources that Craig and his team have created are phenomenal. So don't be a podcast junkie. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Craig Ballantyne, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super excited to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's going to be so much fun, Mike. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, we connected on Instagram. I, I can't remember if I connected through Aaron or through Bedros or some post that you had, but I immediately was drawn to your message because a lot of what you share about accountability, about purpose and meaning, about not hiding, about stepping into your light, all of that stuff is stuff I believe in and, and subscribe to myself. And we're going to get into all of that. We're going to get into the perfect day formula, which is really, I believe, a critical component 
beyond just the quote unquote morning routine that will enable people to have the impact in in the lives of others that they desire. And before we do that, we're going to learn a little bit about who you are and where you came from and some of the beliefs that you had to let go of and maybe some of the beliefs that you've carried along with you in your life. Sound like a plan? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. So one of the first things I noticed about you is you have an incredibly generous spirit. That was uh, revealed to me by number one, when you said, hey, I'll, I'll send you a copy of my book. And not only did I get a copy of your book, but I got this amazing kit. And then number two, like a few days, if maybe a couple weeks later, I get this newsletter from you, which is really awesome. And then number three, I get this book uh, called Willpower Won't Work from you. Uh, and then, it, which was hilarious because I also had bought like 10 copies of that book to give away. So uh, there you go. Where does this generous spirit come from? You know, I think it's just that I, I really believe in the message that I have. And so the first two things that you mentioned, my book, my kit, you know, I want to get that out to the world. I want everybody to have that because I truly believe that it can help every single person, housewife, you know, rich actors, professional athletes, business owners, CEOs, executives, writers, everybody. So I want to get that out to everyone and I want to get it in front of influencers like you, Mike. And so that was the reason I wanted to send that. Plus, it's a really good way for people to get to know me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is generous, I suppose, but it's also kind of selfish at the same time. You know, it supports my mission that that we'll talk about and how everyone needs to be proud of what they do. And then the Mm -hmm. second thing continues with that, that little print newsletter. I send that out to everybody who is a client of mine or who could be a client of mine. And I just come, you know, I just have so much stuff that I learn all the time through working with my clients, through coaching high performers. And I want to share that because I, I've been driven since I was a child to go and help people find simple solutions. And, you know, I created my first career was in the fitness industry selling very short home workout videos to the world. And we sold hundreds of thousands of copies. I have videos on YouTube that have been watched two and a half million times four-minute workouts, all these things. When I was a kid, I would see all these people sitting around the lunch table at their jobs, uh, you know, whether it was through my own first job that I had or you know, just passing through and you know, with my parents and visiting other people. And I would hear them complaining about everything. And I was just like, even as a kid, I knew the solution was there. And so I want to help people stop complaining and start succeeding. Mm. Now I realize most people complain you can't really help those people, but it's the high performers who listen to this type of show who want to get to the next, next, next level. Those are the people that are going to take action. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I want to get in front of. And I find that also when you have high performers, and I, I say this to myself because I consider myself a high performer, when I find myself complaining about something, it's because I've gotten off path or I'm not, I'm not focused on what I'm, what I'm really called to do. And, and I think that the perfect day formula is the ideal way to kind of revert back and get back on path. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But you know, one of my mentors always says, he says, abundance says yes to abundance. And so I don't think that anything that you're doing is selfish. I think that it's, a, it's an abundant mindset that you have that is, is you're just giving to this world. And I think that's the ultimate way that we fulfill our purposes through giving. Yeah. And I don't think that, you know, I think that being selfish is, is okay. I mean, we talked about in certain situations, it's, it's, well, many situations it's bad, but 
you know, you need to be really confident about what you want to do. And you need to be driven to go out there and create a great world for yourself. And in order to create a great world for yourself, you have to have value to the world. So, you know, that individual rugged selfishness that drives us because everybody's really out for their own best interests. And if mm-hmm. the best interests can serve other people, then, you know, you're really doing a great thing. hundred percent. Now you've, you've talked about your family just briefly. You mentioned them. What made your family unique? If you had to think about growing up, what, what made your family unique or, or stands out in your mind? Well, on the positive side, they were incredibly hard workers. My parents, my father was a farmer. My mother was a secretary and then she was a housewife and she probably worked just as hard as being a housewife, cooking and cleaning and sewing our clothes and canning vegetables for the wintertime. You know, she probably worked as hard at that, but probably even harder than she did at, at her eight hour job every day. And so you know, I saw them in action. I saw them work very hard. I saw them be diligent. I saw them be frugal. And so that was a huge, huge lesson for me. And it's carried on into what I do today. Now, at the same time, that can kind of hurt you because you have that blue collar mindset and somewhat bad relationship with money. But I look at the uh, the bright side mostly. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the lessons that you took note of as a kid and reflect back on now? Well, I would say that, you know, you have to be very well prepared. I mean, even in just my mom and her gardening, you know, you have to think about what you're going to plant. You have to go and do the, all the preparation. And then there's a, you know, this huge delayed gratification and delayed gratification is often associated with success in life. And so you're not going to get overnight results. I mean, you plant carrots, they're not coming up tomorrow. And you also have to Uh, realize that there's going to be times, uh, just like the old saying goes, you make hay when the sun is shining. Um, You have to really put a a lot of work at the start when you're planting and then in the harvest time. And those days, you know, when my father was in the fields in the harvest time, you know, it's from first light in the morning till, man, they would go until almost midnight, you know, running the tractors and, and taking the corn from the the fields to the uh, the silos where they would store it. So, you know, he worked really, really hard and it was, but it was also mental preparation work. And so that Mm -hmm. probably led to the way that I was with the planning in the perfect day formula kid, I think. I I love that you mentioned farming and, and what it takes to, to actually get a crop from the ground to the, the table, so to speak, because so many people today just want the harvest right away. Yeah. They, they don't necessarily want to do the work. And, and it's pervasive in our culture today, just this instant gratification, this expectation that I'm going to open up something and the next day be a seven figure thing. You know what, you know what I'm, I'm nauseated by right now on like, if I see this online with anybody I'm following, I'm like, okay, I got, I'm just unfollow because like, you know, the, here's seven quick steps steps to becoming a seven figure business or whatever, you know, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's, it's, there's no substance behind it. And I, we, what you're doing, one of the things that I'm, well, if, if one of them was invent time machine, then, then (laughs) I would pay attention. But other than that, yes, exactly. But you know, when that comes out, I'll I'll pay attention too. And I'll definitely hit subscribe. But what, what, what you're doing really provides a lot of substance. There's a lot of just meat uh, behind there that people who, who want to do the work will, will listen to and will, will, will chew on and will actually take action on. One of the things you said, too, is that you were very attentive as a kid and you heard people complaining. And I want to know 
what you as a kid, what little Craig Ballantyne thought he was capable of achieving as a kid. Man, that's so interesting because I look back and I was thinking about this recently. I don't ever have an idea that I was going to be like a firefighter or anything. Um, you know, certainly entrepreneur was not something in my head. I just knew it was going to be something very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in Canada, I certainly wanted to be a hockey player when I grew up, but eventually, probably around age 10, you figure out pretty quickly that's not happening. And, and then from there, it was definitely not any specific role. It was like, I never, I don't want to be a doctor. And, and the thing is, I just eventually, when I was in college, I was like, how can I transfer, you know, reading and writing into some type of business? And, and that, you know, I'm kind of a bookworm and nerd by heart. So, that's where I eventually ended up. And it was really, I just did a lot of reading. I did a lot of playing by myself when I was a kid. So I had a great imagination and it all kind of turned out to be very, very well for me. But I never really had my sets, my sights set on anything when I was a kid. Not that I can remember. And I have a very good uh, memory. So I just don't know what I thought I was going to be when I was a kid. You know, there, I don't know about you, but when, when I was a kid, I, I had a lot of older mentors that I looked up to and that spoke into my life and provided wisdom and knowledge and experience. Did you ever have anybody in your life that, that was a wise person like that, kind of like a sage as you were coming up? No, not really. No, I, I mean, it's just, there's nothing magical about my childhood other than hard work that I can think of. You know, certainly we weren't surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurs. We, my, most of my parents' friends were farmers and I hung around kids who played sports and that was about it. So it wasn't anything that would have said, hey, you know, that really would have said, hey, Craig, you're going to be a speaker and a coach and an author when you, well, maybe the author thing, because I always love books and I like writing and I, I was very creative, but uh, I don't think anybody pr- would have predicted I, I'd be where I am right now. If hard work were personified, that would be the, the, the wise person would be observing what it takes to, to actually see something through to fruition. Yeah, I think, you know, I was, I was definitely surrounded by people who worked hard and they never, but they didn't, you know, they knew they were working hard, uh, but they didn't think there was anything else. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what farmers do, Mm -hmm. uh, have always done even today and more so hundreds of years ago. So I really think that that entire environment shaped me that way. Mm -hmm. So did you always believe intuitively inside of yourself that, that there, there could be something more, something bigger, something greater? Oh, absolutely. When I was a kid, I remember this. I was five years old. I was walking out uh, our laneway. We had a very long laneway on the farm. And I remember I was with my cousins playing and I just, this is going to sound crazy, but I heard this voice in my head say, you are special. It didn't say anything else, but that's all it said to me. And I've always kind of had this, like maybe a little bit of an inflated ego, which can help and hurt you. Mm -hmm. But that was really, truly something I believed and still believe that I have this gift, this ability to help people in a way that nobody else does I, uh, in my coaching and that my writing is good, that my message is good, that I, that I need to do more video, all this stuff. And it stems from that belief that I had when I was a kid. Dude, that is powerful. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what your faith background is, but I'm, I'm a Christian and, and I believe that that was probably God or your guardian angel uh, whispering truth into you. Uh, there, there's a lot of stoicism like throughout your book. And, and I'd love to learn a little bit about what your first encounter with the Stoics was and how you began to kind of digest some of their philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really stumble across it probably until about 2011. It was mostly because one of my business partners, Matt Smith, is 
heavily into Stoicism. And I haven't even really done that much reading. I mean, I haven't read Seneca's big books. I've read mostly summaries. I've read Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which is an easy book to read. Um, uh, there's a book called The Art of Living, which is a translation of Epictetus's teachings, which had the greatest influence on me. So I'm certainly not like a learned scholar in Stoicism, but the simple principles are very easy to pick up and they mm-hmm. resonate with me. Uh, I think they resonate with the farm boy in me a little bit. And a lot of it is personal responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. And it also is just really helps you frame the way the world is that you know, there's nothing you can't control other people. You can only control yourself. And I think that's very important, always has been. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's definitely very important today for a lot of people to step back and realize, hey, listen, if somebody else has something that doesn't change my life and I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to focus on making the best life for me. Totally. You know, and that's a perfect segue into the first kind of question that I had related to the book and kind of teeing up the overall philosophy is that you write in the book that there's no value in worrying about the things we can't influence, which I, yeah. I, I mean, it's like a, I mean, there's truth bombs laid throughout the book, you know, and that's like one of the, one of the early ones. How have you experienced that in your own life? Well, as soon as I read that it's, you know, Epictetus describes it as you can't control the externals and the externals are anything outside of your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. You can't do anything about whether or not your boss is angry. You can't do anything about whether or not it's raining. You can't do anything about the traffic jam that you're stuck in. You can't, well, I mean, you can maybe find a way through Waze (laughs) or something, but, you know, most of the time, all you can do is control yourself. And that just means not getting upset, not getting angry. And when I read that, that really kind of lifted the weight of the world off my shoulders and just gave me a great perspective. Mm -hmm. And it was really important because it frees you up and it frees up your mental energy to focus on the right things rather than focusing on what somebody else has or what somebody else is doing. You really need to internalize all of your efforts. And that sentence, that phrase, that message really helped me with that. Have you ever read Man's Search Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? I would imagine you have. I mean, I, if I could force a book on every high school student, it would be that book. Yeah, I mean that the the whole stimulus response relationship, the 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 fact that the last human freedom that no one can take away from us is our ability to choose our attitude, choose our response, et cetera. I mean that that is the root of of everything. I think, uh, and and something I I'm really I have four kids. I know you have at least two, right? Or no, I don't have any kids. Oh, you don't have any kids? Oh, okay, no. I think I think I read about it in your vision. So I'm, I'm yes, my I'm, vision. I, I will I'm, have two kids. You will have two kids. Okay, yeah. So I'm speaking that into the future. Yes, uh, and uh, and you will have two kids. I have four kids. They're real. <laughs> wow. And uh, and and but I am really trying to to at a at a very young age instill in them the truth that the, one of the only things they can control is how they respond when something doesn't go their way and how they respond when you know when they win. You know, when they, you know, because you don't want them to be too high, too low. Yeah. I love, I love the phrase. I think this is from Vince Lombardi or a coach of that era. And, and who, whichever coach said it, it's when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. Mm -hmm. And, and I really like that the way that, you know, whether or not you play sports, that's the way you should live your, your life according, you know, with that phrase in mind. Hey, can I tell you a crazy story about man, about Victor Frankel? Yeah, yeah, please. I had no idea, and I don't think most people know this, 
But he he didn't have to go to the concentration camp. He mm-hmm. was actually outside of Germany or Poland or wherever it was that he got rounded up. V- Vienna. Was it Vienna? Yeah. Okay, maybe you know this story, but you know his parents were back there. Mm-hmm. And so he could have escaped, but he went back for his parents. He went back to either try and save them or to be with them and support them. So this man, not only did he write that book, not only did he survive the concentration camp, but he could have not even went there in the first place. And I mean, yes. man, that guy had a backbone yes. made of whatever stronger than steel. So, yes. you know, if yes. we can be anything like him, better yes. off the world would be. You know, I mean, like there's so much about Viktor Frankl that, I mean, we could have a whole entire episode about that guy. But yes, he, he in fact, he and his wife had tickets to go to the, to be, to go to the U.S., I believe. And, and he could not do that. They, they came to an agreement together that they could not leave his parents alone. And so they were rounded up by the Gestapo, taken to a concentration camp. And on the first day, Victor loses his wife, his unborn child, and his mother and father. Man. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And one of his core philosophies is that love will always find a way. Everybody needs to read that book and study that man. And most of what you we know today as positive psychology has got their its roots in the work that Viktor Frankl did while he was in a concentration camp. You know, yeah, that is that's incredible. I mean, there, there's two reasons why I think that every person and every high school student should read that book. You know, first of all, is everything we've described, and then I actually have kind of like a second. It's almost. I wouldn't call it a twisted take on it, but it's, a, it's probably a take that most people don't think about. And it's, it's in terms of physical endurance mm-hmm. and what those people endured in that camp physically mm-hmm. is absolutely mind-boggling mm-hmm. for anybody to live that long in freezing cold temperatures with very few calories doing manual labor. Man. It, mm-hmm. I mean, sleeping in, mm-hmm. you know, 500 people in a, you know, in a row sort of thing. It really is incredible. And so every time you think you're tired, you're fatigued, you don't know tired or fatigued, put it that yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, we, we really, we really don't know what we're capable of until we're tested like that. And, yeah. and one of the, you know, as soon as he saw people losing their, the will to live, like kind of letting go mentally. You know, that's when that's when they would die shortly after. Yeah. And there's another guy, uh, you know, do you know the story of James Stockton? The no. Oh, so James Stock Stockton, I believe. I believe he was a senator or something in the United States government, but he was in the Vietnam War and he was shot down and he was a prisoner of war for either four or five years. And he is a very famous story. And he, you know, very similar to what you just described, much like Viktor Frankl would see people you could tell when they were going down. What Stockton found was if these guys in the prisoner of war camp thought they were getting out at Christmas time and Christmas time came and went, they were goners. Mm. Mm. But if like Stockton, they just believed that eventually they would get out, Mm. that was the positive spirit they needed, Mm. but there was no finish line because if you get to the finish line and nothing happens, your will is destroyed. And mm-hmm. he said those guys were either, I don't know what would happen to them. You know, somehow they would pass on, maybe they kill themselves or whatever, but they, you know, he didn't break. And, 
And uh, I, I don't know if he actually practice stoicism, but it is a very stoic approach to to life that he had in there. He did some amazing things. But I think, you know, when the North Vietnamese would make him go on and and do the propaganda stuff, he would like slip in secret messages or even like side jokes or something into it that only Americans would understand. So, uh, you know, there's some amazing stories of resilience out there. And it's always a good reminder to be reading those and apply them to our own lives. Totally. Well, I mean, another book that comes to mind, uh, we're just dropped. This is, this is a book recommendation podcast episode, apparently. But Yeah, but everybody loves the book recommendation <laughs> podcast yeah. the best anyways. I know, that's right. But And one that one that Cameron Harold gave to me, I, I'm not, do you know Cameron? I'm sure you do. Yeah, Cameron's in, uh, yeah. in uh, Genius Network with me. Yeah, okay, yeah. So Cameron's uh, an awesome dude. He's been on the show twice. He's coming on again later uh, in May. But one of the books he gave me is a book called Endurance about Ernest Shackleton, the, the early explorer in the ni- early 1900s. Have you read that book? No, I haven't read any of that, but he's going oh, to North dude. Pole or South Pole, right? He was going to Antarctica, yes. And his, he was, his, the boat, the ship that was commissioned was named Endurance. Okay. And, uh, and they, he and his 28 crew members got trapped in an ice floe and the boat got crushed and they had to abandoned ship. They moved from, from ice flow to ice flow for 500 something days, you know, oh, wow. before they made their way to safety. And it's a fascinating book. Highly recommend it. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. But back to your work, back to the perfect day formula. So one of the things that, that you talk about in, in the book is that structure equals freedom. And, and specifically, controlling the mornings, conquering the chaos of the afternoon, which I totally resonated with, and concentrating on what matters in the evening. Yeah. So how does this type of structure equal freedom? And how can people begin to kind of integrate that into their, their own life? Yeah. So the structure equals freedom is weird for people to think about. So it goes like this. When I I used to struggle with anxiety attacks and I struggled because I had the paradox of freedom. I had too much freedom in my life. I could work as much as I wanted. And so I did 12 or 13 hours a day. And I could go out and be a young man in the big city partying as much as I want. And I did. And that all caught up to me. And I realized I needed more structure in my life. Because when you put structure in your day, boundaries around your work time, when you put structure in your morning so that you become more productive, you can get work done on time and get home to your family and be present with them and concentrate on what counts. So we're disciplined during the day so that we are free, enjoying true freedom at night. And that's the message that I wanted to impart through my uh, structure equals freedom message. One of the areas that, that I struggle with the most personally is, is the chaos of the afternoon. It's the more... My, I have a pretty structured morning and and I have a pretty structured evening, but it's in that the 
middle of the day that things go awry, interruptions, distractions. And I, I was fascinated by the idea of scripting your day. I'd never really thought about scripting the day. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the concept of, and it subscribed to, hey, I've got 168 hours in the week, in a seven-day week, and it's up to me how I spend them. But it's amazing that even though you have visibility on that, how you lose track of it throughout the day and throughout the week. And suddenly you ended up spending hours not really accomplishing anything. Having a script, so to speak, even though that might appear rigid to other people, it actually creates opportunity. Well, let me tell you that. Let me ask you this question. Do they have a script in the musical Hamilton? For sure. Absolutely. That's the only way you're going to turn that thing into one of the greatest plays ever. It's the only way you're going to turn you know, JFK's speech into one of the greatest speeches ever, Martin Luther King's speeches. Everything is scripted. The best salespeople in the world, they're not flying by the seat of their pants. They are scripted. And scripting your day is as essential as scripting every football play in the Super Bowl. You don't just go and wing it. That's not how a high performer acts. And so what most people do, uh, the mistakes they make, first of all, is they try and do too much every day, right? You know, you make your to-do list and there's 19 things on it. And then you get frustrated at the end of the day because, you know, you're working late and you didn't get them all done. And so that is a big mistake I see with people. And it's because they don't script their day and they think, I can get so much done today, but they don't take into account that there's going to be the chaos of the world that's going to be in there. You need some buffers in there as well. You need to make sure that your communications are in there as well. So that is one of the biggest things that people make the mistake of. You know, when I'm coaching people, it's like, let's figure out what you can do in the course of the day. And another thing that people make a mistake on is they don't have end times. Everybody's got a start time to the meeting but nobody has an end time to the meeting. And the next thing you know, what you thought was going to be a 30-minute meeting is a 90-minute meeting because nobody has any agenda or boundary. And therefore, you know, you thought you were going to get 19 things done. Well, one of them just took three times as long as you expected it to. And now you're in trouble for the course of your day. So yeah, you have to script it just like you're going to script anything of value. So one of the things that I that ends up t- derailing meetings is the small talk and the pleasantries and all that stuff at the beginning, which I actually like because I'm a personal, I'm a personable guy. I like to know how people are feeling and doing what's going on in their life. But how can we manage that aspect of it? Because I think that is the one element that will set the ability for you to actually have a productive meeting. Well, I, I disagree. I mean, the you, you can have a little bit of pleasantries and stuff in there, and it depends on the, the, the meeting. So for example, we have a team meeting, a weekly alignment meeting, and it starts off, it's very structured. Um, the very first thing we do is we celebrate everybody in the room. Okay. Now that gives you the opportunity to have productive small talk. So mm-hmm. we go around and it's like, Bianca, you know, who do you want to celebrate on the team and why? Oh, you know, who do you want? To, and then Kelly, who do you want to celebrate and why? Mark, who do you want to celebrate and why? Okay, now we've gotten to know each other a little, you know, we're loose, we're having a good time. Great. But it's all structured in there. It's not like we're going to go around and just jibber jabber for a bit. And then we get into our personal victories. And then we get into our, um, you know, what we did last week. And then we get into what we're going to do this week. And then we have group discussion and it's over. But Mm -hmm. that is an agenda based meeting. With the meetings, there's a couple of rules. One, there needs to be agenda. One, two, there needs to be somebody who drives the meeting. And we rotate the leader of that meeting. So it's not always just one person. Three, 
you need to make sure that only the people who need to be in the meeting are in the meeting. If you are not absolutely essential to that meeting, you're not going to be invited to it. And that's going to save everybody a ton of time because first of all, that person is not going to waste their time. And second of all, you're not going to get opinions from people that don't need to be there. And then fourth, you you just need to make sure that everybody leaves that meeting. Uh, well, you need to have sorry, a measurable outcome for the meeting. So you go in, this is the point of this meeting. This is what we're here to do. We're not really here to have small talk. You want to have a small talk? You do that at lunchtime. You do that before work. You know, be, and I'm just, I'm being polite at the same time, but I'm also like, let's, I don't want you to, to end up being at work for an extra half an hour because we had small talk at work. Mm-hmm. That's not what you're here for. You'd rather have small talk at home with your four kids. Mm-hmm. And, and then at the end of the meeting, the fifth thing we have is everybody walks out of there with a very detailed plan, deadline. You know, it's who does what by when. Mm. That's, you know, that's the name of a book, but you know, pretty much the name of the book covers everything is every meeting has to have who does what by when. And if you leave the meeting with that, everybody wins. So that's how we do our meetings. And it's, you know, I ran a meeting for a friend of mine in 10 minutes. You know, I got on, it was about helping somebody get more. It was actually Ben Hardy. We were doing it for Ben Hardy, the author of Willpower Won't Work. And it was, hey, we want to be able to help Ben sell more books and get more people to his Facebook group. I went on there with a, with a group of people who I know would have chit-chatted and jibber-jabbered forever and ever. And I went in, I set out the agenda of the meeting in advance. I went in, I didn't ha- really do any pleasantries, but I know all these people. We don't need to do pleasantries all the time. We right. got to it. I was in and out of there in 10 minutes. And I said, hey, if you guys want to continue the discussion, you're free to waste your time, but you're not wasting <laughs> mine. You know, And so... So, I mean, that's how I get so much done. And we can do pleasantries within a structured meeting, but that's not the reason yeah. for the meeting. Yeah, no, I get it. You want to do pleasantries? Let's go have dinner. And Right, and exactly. Food. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that requires a certain level of commitment. And one of the things you said in the book, which I loved, is that most people are unwilling to match their dreams with the commitment needed to achieve them. And And I'd love if you could share a story about how how that paradigm shifted in your own world, or maybe even in one of the clients where you saw them go from not having the commitment matched to their dreams to having them both aligned. Yeah. Well, what I mean there is, you know, everybody wants to win eight gold medals at the Olympics, but nobody wants to spend 10 hours a day in the pool, right? Everybody, as we talked about before, everybody wants that overnight success, but nobody's willing to work 10 years to get that overnight success. And so in a day-to-day operation, most business owners, you know, they take the path of least resistance. And what does that mean? Well, it means checking email. It means going on social media. It means getting those dopamine hits from you know, all the addictions that Zuckerberg has been nice enough to bring us. And most people are not willing to do the real work that will move them ahead. Everybody wants to write a book, but nobody's willing to sit down at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and write for two hours, mm-hmm. which is what it takes to write a book in most cases, mm-hmm. because you're not getting it done in your nine to five mm-hmm. if you're also the CEO of a company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everybody always says, I want to do this, but you look at what they're willing to do, and generally it's not the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm from the weight loss world. I see this all the time. I want to lose 10 pounds, but I don't want to give up drinking beer, eating pizza, and sitting on my couch. Okay, we're probably going to have a problem with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you, but when you do align your goals and your actions, 
And, you know, that's an entire workshop day in itself. Mm-hmm. Then you can become unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you build this straight line for success. Because as I like to say, fat loss is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Success is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Mm-hmm. Climbing Mount Everest is actually very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. People have gone up the same path over and over and over again. And if you want to do it, you would follow their same path. Mm. It's incredibly brutally hard, but Mm. it's simple. You Mm. just have to match your willingness to sacrifice to do it. And most people aren't. Yeah. You know what? Uh, You know what the real definition of the word passion is? No. The willingness to suffer. Oh, really? Yes. It's, That's it's interesting. A, it's I got to write about that. For yes. Sure. So it's 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 paseo. It's the Latin rooted word, and it, it, the origin is this is the passion of Christ, right? Right. So like, it's the willingness to suffer. So so compassion is the willingness to suffer with someone, right? So, but huh. that's that's the thing about like the word passion that's so thrown around in this world today. It's it's yeah. People don't know what they're passionate about because they don't know what they're willing to suffer for. Well, I always see when I talk about passion in your business, someone says, hey, you know, should I be passionate about my business? And, and my business partner, he thinks it's crock crap. And, you know, he's big on the Cal Newport approach, which is, you know, you need to become so good. Uh, so People good. forget you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's going to suck and all that stuff. And, and, and you know, but you're not, you're not doing it about passion to start. I'm, I'm a believer that you have to choose something that you're willing to do when it sucks, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. When, when you don't want to get out of bed, when you are $10,000 in, in, in debt, when you haven't made a sale in 14 days, are you willing to get up and work on it in those situations when you're suffering? Yeah. If so, then yeah, do it. But if you're going to be like, well, I, and, and so that's why I say, yeah, you have to be passionate about something because you're going to have to be willing to suffer in order to succeed. Exactly. So, yes, that's that's the true definition right there. Yeah, so I do believe that, you know, unlike a lot of people who say, oh, you know, don't do something, you know, the, the people that want to be contrarian and saying following your passion is stupid. I think you, I mean, if you're not willing to suffer, you know, you're not going to, or you're not prepared to suffer, you're not going to succeed. Yeah, yeah 100%. So, so that's my approach to it. I, so that's I, great. I, I, I really I appreciate that. that. Yeah, it came from, there's a great book, another book recommendation, one of my mentors, there's a guy named Kevin Hall. He wrote a, a phenomenal book uh, called Aspire, Discover Your Life's Purpose Through the Power of Words. Okay. And highly recommend that book. In fact, I'll send you a copy. Thank you. Uh, we were just talking about passion and about commitment. And one of the key things that is tied to both of them, I think, especially when you're trying to make your dreams a reality, is accountability. And and I've, I've become more aware of this recently in my own life, specifically ab- uh, about how the lack of accountability diminishes one's awareness and, and ultimately, you know, dis- disintegrates their ability to achieve anything because they don't know what they're missing or they're not, they're not accountable to anybody, for lack of a better word. But, and I, I think that the world... And, and, and we've gotten away from that. We've gotten to these these activity trackers, which abdicate accountability to something on your watch. But I really think that we need to get more old school, non digital, non technical, and it needs to be a physical accountability. So, how do you approach like making yourself accountable to someone else and increasing that psychological awareness on on the goals and the rules that you live by? 
Well, I think the most important thing is that the accountability, the mentor, the person that you're getting the accountability from, they have to set a higher bar for you than what you would set for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what a good coach does. Um, Coach comes in with outside eyes and says, hey, Michael Phelps, you know, you think you can swim this fast? I've coached, you know, thousands of swimmers in the past. And I know that you're capable of swimming faster than you think. Or Mrs. Jones, you think you can lose five pounds in two months? I've worked with hundreds of women just like you. And I know that you can lose 10 pounds in four weeks and so on and so forth. Or you think that you can write a book in this long or you can build this build big of a business. I'm going to set the bar higher for you. And then the next level of accountability or the next secret in accountability is you have to be accountable to somebody that you deeply do not want to disappoint. So I'm going to say that again. You must be accountable to somebody that you deeply do not want to disappoint. And what here's why. Because like, you know, you and I are, are getting along pretty well here. But if you were my accountability partner, I just don't... We don't know each other well enough that I would care if I disappointed you. Right. Okay. And so you have to go to somebody who if you disappoint them and they give you the look or if they you know, you know, write you a scathing email that you're going to be like, I'm never going to let that happen again. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a money relationship. Like I, I have paid coaches in the past where I didn't care what they thought of me. And therefore, I, wasn't, I didn't do my best because I didn't care. You know, they didn't have that accountability. And I didn't care if I deeply or I didn't deeply care if I disappointed them. But I've had you know, people like Bedros Koulian, who's who I consider my brother practically, and you know, I paid him as a coach, but also just as a friend, even before I ever paid him any money, I looked at him as, and I was like, I don't ever want to disappoint this guy. Mm-hmm. And you know, being accountable in that level of a relationship is what's going to change your life. So who's that, who's that person for you now, today? Uh, Bedros, for sure. Another guy named Joel Marion, and then my business partner, Matt Smith. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, I need to reflect on that myself. Who, besides my wife, who are the people that I just really don't want to let down? I, I've never really done that deep reflection. And I think that's a worthwhile exercise for everybody. So do it. Yeah. You know, we're, we're coming up on, on, uh, on our time together. I have a few more questions. And I want to share a quote from your book that is from the, the Stoic that you write, include a lot. What's his name again? Epicurious or no, that's Epictetus. Epictetus. Epicurious has to do with food, I think. <laughs> well, Ep- Epic- Epicure- Epicurean is another philosophy, oh, okay. but I think it's more hedonistic, I yeah. think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I just remember there used to be an app called Epicurious or something and it had to do well, with Well, yeah. Ep- Epicurean is all about food. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. But somehow it's related to a <laughs> philosophy too. Um, so the quote is, how long can you afford to put off what you, we really want to be. Your nobler self cannot wait any longer. Put your principles into practice now. Stop the excuses and procrastination. This is your life. From this instant on, stop disappointing yourself. Decide to be extraordinary and do what you need to do now. And one of the things that, that I'd never really heard about or thought about that you write about in the book is the importance of establishing rules as opposed to habits in the, in the journey of success. How, how do we do that? Well, I'll give a bit of background first. So, you know, we talked about the book, Willpower Doesn't Work. And most people rely on willpower to, you know, not eat chocolate cake and all that stuff. But if you have rules about how you behave, they become automatic actions. And it's like having an operating system, much like your iPhone has an operating system. And, you know, most people say, well, I don't want more rules for my life. I already got rules on where I can park and 
you know, my business rules. But those rules are imposed upon you, and everyone is rebellious and wants to resist that. But when you impose rules upon yourself, you build that strong operating system. So I recommend that people have rules for their health, for their wealth building, for how they start the day, for their bedtime, and also just a rule about what they do not do, their number one not to do. And that's a good starting point for creating a few rules for your life that are going to help make success more automatic. What are, what are two or three rules you've established for yourself? Uh, the first one is I go to bed and get up at the same time every day. And then it's, and basically the most important thing to me there is getting up at 4 a.m. every day. And then the, the uh, thing that I do first and most important in the morning is I write every morning, my, you know, wherever I am in the world, it doesn't matter what day it is, where I am, I am going to write for an hour every morning because that is what I do. I write books, I write articles. I write content, I write scripts, all these things. That's the most important thing in my day. If I write for an hour in the morning, I could basically go and lie on the couch for the rest of the day and I've already won. And then uh, a not to do is check email until I've been up for several hours. And that keeps me out of trouble, keeps me going down rabbit holes, keeps me getting flustered or something by a negative email mm -hmm. and or checking social media. I just don't do that stuff for the first couple hours. I love that. It's so powerful and, and something that could break a lot of bad habits for myself and for everybody listening, I'm sure. You know, as we wrap up, uh, we will be sure to link to all of your, your work, your, the Perfect Day Formula, the book, uh, Early to Rise, and, and all of your social media accounts in the show notes and people can, can go check that out. But I always conclude the conversation with, with the same three questions. And the first is, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I have this clarity, this clarity of seeing people's future. And it almost is a superpower to me. I call myself the chess master. I can move Mike on the board of his life to the winning position. So that is my superpower. And that's mm. what I would you know, accelerate. Mm, I love that. Okay. I'll have, to, I'll have to talk to you more about that offline. The mm. uh, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from performing at our full potential? Well, one, that I'm not good enough. Uh, two, that you know, I won't be able to do this, even though I've already done more amazing things in my life. I, always, I use this analogy of a champion mindset. You take a look at most people in the audiences I speak in front of, a lot of personal trainers. They've already dieted down to 3% body fat, stripped naked in front of strangers, and done a pose down. And yet they can't sell Mrs. Jones into their gym. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. it, you know, they've already done something that's a thousand times harder than selling Mrs. Jones into their gym. And so uh, most people just have this belief that they can't become a good salesperson or a persuader. Mm. And another thing is you can't get up earlier. Everybody can get up earlier. If you had to, you can get up earlier. You, you know, you can pretty much do anything if you had to. And most people just don't believe they can, they're capable of many, many physical accomplishments. They just kind of take the easy way out. Totally. The, the last question is, comes from the title of a book. It's a great book. Uh, we've talked a lot about a lot of great books today, but, it, but the question is, how will you measure your life? Yeah, I like that one. Clayton Christensen, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so I often ask people, um, is the life you're living worth what you're giving up to, to have it is another mm -hmm. question. But what, so... So how will I measure my life? Yeah, how will you measure your life? The, basically the legacy of family and business. You know, wealth in the context of the people that I've touched. And I guess if there was like a physical 
version of it. Years ago, I was reading this Town and Country magazine when I, I was staying at the St. Regis in New York, and it was on the the table in the living room of my suite. And I picked it up, and there's a picture of the Ferragamo family, so Salvatore Ferragamo's um, you know family. And there was like seven generations, and they were all in a farm in Italy. And I want to have that photo recreated mm-hmm. for my family. Mm-hmm. So that's how I will measure my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I love it. Craig, thank you so much for dropping all this value and sharing with us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show today. This has been a blast, my friend. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.